Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs 22, verse 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6, that is on page 544 in your church Bibles. It's on page 655 in my Bible, if that helps you. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about raising up children in a world gone mad. Now, you can think of this as practical anthropology. We're in the middle of a series uh, called Biblical Anthropology. We're asking big picture questions about who we are as human beings. What does it mean to be a human being? Who are we in relation to God? Who are we in relation to each other? Who are we in relation to the world? Of course, as we talked about a few weeks ago, a big part of that is this be fruitful and multiply thing. It's, it's like the first thing God said to human beings. It's an important aspect of our identity. But how do we do that? That's that's why I'm saying practical anthropology. This is about living well and wisely in light of who we are and in light of where we are. Samuel James, uh, in his recent book, Digital Liturgies, writes that Christian wisdom is about living a life that responds correctly to reality. Do you understand that? So this is why we're in Proverbs today instead of Genesis. Genesis is about design. Genesis is about telling us how the world is, how we are. But then Proverbs is about how to live well and wisely in light of those realities. That's the goal. We want to build marriages that correctly correspond to who we are as male and female. And we want to raise kids in a way that correctly responds to who we are and who they are as human beings. Again, that's what the book of Proverbs is all about. Proverbs tells us how to live well and wisely in the world that God designed. So hopefully you have your Bible open now to Proverbs 22, verse 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, maybe you're saying, hey, Pastor, isn't that the verse you said not to quote at you last week? And then here you are quoting it to us. What's going on? That's a fair question. To be clear, I am not in any way opposed to any verse of the Bible. What I was talking about last week is the fact that this verse, misunderstood and misapplied, can be weaponized in the church, and it often is. I'm against that. I'm against using this verse like a club to, to beat people down. You know, right now in, um, in our RMM, if you're doing the Robert Murray McShane, the RMM Bible reading plan, we're working our way through the book of Job. And this morning, uh, we read the speech, one of the speeches of Bildad. Bildad is a box of hammers, isn't he? Can we just agree there? Uh, he sounds like a hobbit, but he's not. Um, it's, his counsel is devastatingly unkind. And, and yet it's about 85% orthodox. Have you noticed that? It, it is amazing how hurtful you can be to people when you know most of the truth, but, but not all of the truth. Or when you have a couple of favorite verses that you don't bother to integrate with a few other verses. And so you're giving people half-truths or 75% truth. It's amazing how hurtful bad theology can be. And and that's what can happen with a verse like that. You can hurt people with a verse like that. 
If you think that verse is a promise, if you think it's saying that if you do these five things, then all of your children will delight in the Lord, wow, you can run through a church like a wrecking ball. And that has been done. I, I got an email just this past week from a lady connected to our congregation who was watching last week's service, and she just said, I needed to hear that because I've been afraid to show my face in church because I've got kids, some of whom are walking with the Lord, some of whom are not, and I just feel like tisk 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 Proverbs 22.6. So we've got to be careful not to abuse this passage, but we should also be careful not to neglect this passage. This, Proverbs may not be promises, but they are wildly useful principles. They are true, just not as promises per se. So Tremper Longman III is really helpful here. In his commentary on this passage, he's speaking about this proverb we just read. He says, it sounds like a promise, and it does. It sounds like a promise, but a proverb does not give a promise. The book of Proverbs advises its hearers in ways that are most likely to lead them to desired consequences if all things are equal. It is much more likely that a child will be a responsible adult if trained in the right path. However, there is also the possibility that the child might come under the negative influences of peers or be led astray in some way. Can any adult parent in this room resonate with that? Well, the point is that this proverb encourages parents to train their children, but does not guarantee that if they do so, their children will never go astray. I guarantee you, there are a couple of Gen X or boomer-aged parents in this room right now that needed to hear that. Proverbs are not promises. They are principles of wisdom for doing life in a good way but fallen world. And this particular proverb is saying that parenting matters. It says that if we train our children well, they will be more likely to walk in the ways that lead to life. Parenting matters. Parenting in light of reality matters. So we're going to talk very practically about what that looks like, drawing our insights from the whole counsel of God. I want to give you five do's and don'ts about parenting. Three things to do and two things not to do. Let's begin with the positive. First wise thing I think we can say about parenting based on scripture, based on reality, is that it is very important for us to do this together, together as male and female. Genesis 1, 27 to 28 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. One of the first things we see in the Bible is that marriage and multiplication go together. That's the design. And when we work in line with that design, we can anticipate better outcomes. Again, that's that's literally how wisdom works. And the science, the social sciences bear this out. Brad Wilcox uh, is a sociology professor at the University of Virginia, UVA. He doesn't write as a Christian. Uh, he identifies as a Catholic, but, but his, his point is not to encourage us to follow Jesus. His point is he just, he's a data hog. He tracks data on marriage and family outcomes. And uh, he re- released a book um, not quite two weeks ago. I think it was February 13th I got my copy. 
and it is filled with useful information. In fact, I would recommend you buy it and read it, not as a marriage devotional, because he, again, he's not going to tell you how to pray or uh, you know, how to be a better Christian, but there is just so much useful information in there about how to parent and how to be married. Uh, it's, it's, it's wisdom, a lot of the stuff that he says. Here's one of the things he says. He says, men who marry before having children are three times more likely to avoid poverty by the time they hit their 30s compared to their peers who put parenthood before marriage. Following the script of that classic nursery school rhyme, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage, actually pays off financially for men. Now, you know, again, there were pages, and that was, I tried to find one quote that distilled like an entire chapter in that book, and that was one. What he's trying to say is that doing things in the right order leads to better outcomes for men and women. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of quotations I could have pulled there. I pulled this one. What he's referring to there is something that social scientists call the success sequence. Wilcox and some others are actually trying to to pressure the government to teach this in schools. Uh, They're saying, for example, that we made great progress in the 90s. I don't know if you know this, but in the 90s, uh, meaning when when guys like me were graduating from high school and and going to college and university, in the 90s, the teenage pregnancy rate was extremely high in North America. And it has dropped like a stone, you know, largely because of a bunch of these educational initiatives or in part because of some of these educational initiatives. So the point is education can work. It can, can help out with some outcomes. And he's saying we should be teaching this in the public school systems because there's a success sequence that they've discovered. And again, these are not Sunday school teachers. These are sociologists. So meaning they don't have an agenda. They're just looking at the facts and saying here's what's true. There's a success sequence apparently. If you graduate from high school, work full-time, get married, and then have kids, it's almost impossible to be poor in North America. That's a, it's a success sequence. These things are wise, and they lead to better outcomes. All, and of course, it makes sense. There's all kinds of financial efficiencies that come from getting married, and there are all kinds of attendant stabilities. One of the things they've discovered, for example, is that married men work harder than single men, right? Because probably they go home, and if they try to play Xbox, their wife is like, what are you doing? <laughs> Knock it off. And, and, and then there's an additional income premium if you have children, because now you come home, and your wife is looking at the kid, and she's looking at the diapers, and she's looking at the Xbox, and she's going to hit you with that thing. Right? And so there's all kinds of attendant stabilities and financial efficiencies that just create a better environment for having and raising children. There's a ton of social science indicating that children do best when they're raised by a mother and a father who live at the same address. Professor and scholar Nancy Piercy, for example, has found that boys with two involved parents are much less likely to be in crisis. Children with absent fathers account for 63% of youth suicides, 90% of homeless and runaway children, 85% of children who exhibit behavioral disorders, 71% of high school dropouts, 85% of youths sitting in prison. That's remarkable. Again, study after study has indicated that children whose parents are married and living at the same address have higher outcomes in every category. More likely to go to college or university, more likely to hold down a full-time job, more likely to get married, have kids of their own, 
less likely to use drugs, less likely to end up in prison, on and on and on, page after page after page of statistics. Moms and dads are magic, magic. And when they live with their kids and when they live with each other with their kids, children and societies flourish. Now, let me speak a word of hope and comfort to young people in this room who maybe have parents who didn't do it right. This is one of the hardest things about being a pastor is that my job is to say true things. My, My job is to encourage you in the ways that lead to life. But I'm aware that every single time I do that, there's somebody in the room who's gonna feel hurt by that. When we do, a, for example, when we do a message on marriage, single people who are wanting to get married but haven't yet are gonna feel hurt by that. When we talk about children, guess who's, who's hurting this morning? People who wanna have children that have not yet been able to. And yet, we still have a responsibility to, to point people in the ways that, that lead to life. But let's do that with with some comfort. Let's do that with some framing. And so I just want to, I understand that there's got to be some young people in the room this morning who are sitting here going, well, my parents didn't follow the success sequence, so what does that mean for me? You know, maybe my parents never got married. Maybe I don't even know who my dad is. And and maybe maybe my parents got married and then got divorced. What about me? Am I doomed and just like we, see, this is the flip side. This is why you can't use Proverbs like a hammer. Because the same way we offered comfort to 60-year-old boomer you know, parents last week, when we say, hey, listen, you understand, you can do everything right and your kids can still make choices and go their own way, right? Likewise, young people, you understand, your parents can do everything wrong and, and you can still make good choices and have great outcomes, Here's, here's why. Because factors are not fate. And because actually we serve a heavenly father who is really good at lifting people out of bad circumstances. Like aren't, in the RMM Bible reading, what's the other place we are right now in the Old Testament? We're also in Exodus where God is delivering people from slavery, i.e. he is extricating people from bad circumstances. Like our God knows how to do that. So I want to be clear, if your parents didn't do it right, that's not a death sentence. But an intact marriage is a gift and a blessing that we should all aspire to give to our children. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That's, that's wisdom. All right, when it comes to parenting, we want to do it together. You also, you, you want to do it with us. That's the second principle of wisdom here. So do it together, do it with us. As we've noted a few times now over the course of this series, the first thing that God says, or one of the first things that God says about human beings, is that it is not good that the man should be alone. We were created for community. Now, that applies to us as adults, but it also applies to our children. Human beings are social creatures. We need community, and we are affected by community. The wise father in the book of Proverbs is constantly trying to press this truth home on the royal son. So he says, for example, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. If you're only going to get like one proverb tattooed on your face, that, <laughs> that's the one. Make sure you get it tattooed in reverse letters so every time you look in the mirror, you're reminded of that, right? Right? 
Like, it really matters who you hang around with. Uh, the billionaire businessman Dan Pena has his own personalized version of this. You've probably heard, heard it. Uh, people say it all the time. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's one of the things he's always saying to young people. Who you are friends with really, really, really matters. And this is why wise parents will do everything in their power to raise their kids in a community that reinforces their values and beliefs. The Bible tells us that it's wise to do this, and the social sciences tells us that it works. Brad Wilcox, again, is helpful here. He says, children from religious families are rated by both parents and teachers as having better self-control, social skills, and approaches to learning than kids with non-religious parents, according to a nationally representative study of more than 16,000 children across the United States. I mean, it, it, it makes a huge difference. In attempting to explain why church-raised kids do so much better in their relationships and in their work-life outcomes, he says that a lot of it comes down to the social pressures they experience from their religious community. These religious communities, he says, are more likely to exercise what social scientists call social control, discouraging behavior that can derail a relationship from infidelity to excessive drinking or drug use, closed quote. So listen, newsflash, kids born into a Christian family are just as attracted to things like binge drinking and premarital sex as their secular peers. The difference is that when a 17-year-old boy, for example, starts doing that kind of stuff here, he is likely to encounter a significant amount of pushback from the group. The other kids are going to tell him to knock it off. And if he doesn't knock it off, then they're going to come to us, the adults in the group, and they're going to express their concerns. I honestly can't tell you how often I've had this, this conversation where a, a young person uh, from the group, from either the, the high school group or the young adults group, will book an appointment with me. And I can usually guess what it's going to be about. It's going to be about one of two things. But one of those two things is I'm worried about so-and-so in the group. They've started to, to binge drink on the weekends. Or they're having sex with their girlfriend. I'm worried they're going to get pregnant. I'm worried this is just not a good thing. And so what we do in that situation is we'll try to load them. We'll try to give them content. Well, here's something that you could say. Have you thought about saying this? Have you tried this? Here's a verse that might be helpful. We try to equip them to go back and have a peer conversation. A lot of times that solves the problem. Peer pressure is magic. But if it doesn't, they'll come back to us again. They'll come back to myself or to Pastor Ryan. And then we'll take it to the next level. Maybe we intervene directly with the the young person. Maybe we we talk to mom and dad. The, The point is this works. Positive peer pressure combined with parental involvement and desperate prayer can pull a teenager out of just about any ditch ever dug by the devil. It really does work. And, and I want to say something to you just as a pastor right now. This is why we have to be patient with our young people. You, we cannot frame the, a child by their worst decisions as 15-year-olds and say, well, that's who that child is. If you want to be a good church and if you want to be a multi-generational church, one of the things you need to do is you need to have a bad memory. You need to allow kids to outgrow their worst decisions. Because they'll make bad decisions. 
Kids often live their lives in their adolescent years from ditch to ditch. You pull them out of one ditch and then boom, head first into another ditch. You yank them out, boom. And then you know, eventually they find the middle of the road. These things are magic. Moms and dads, you need to know that this kind of social pressure, this kind of group pressure, group conditioning, this is your superpower. And so you need to invest in church community now. Because I'll tell you, this only works if you're here on a regular basis. This doesn't happen if you go to church once a month. It does not happen. But if, you, if you're coming every week and if your kids are also coming back midweek, then those ties are going to be thick enough to pull your kid out of just about anything. I have seen it. <laughs> I have lived it. Listen, as a former teenage boy who was really good at finding the ditch, let me just tell you that, that this stuff works. I have no problem standing up here and telling you that I would not be here if it were not for the Holy Spirit, my mom, and my local church that I grew up in. And these things are magic. And I can't give you my mom. She's spoken for. But I can commend to you the Holy Spirit and the church. That leads me to my third do. Do raise your kids as a couple. Do raise your kids in the church. And do raise your kids with a purpose. And that purpose, as we talked about last week, is to guide your children toward a right relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's your purpose. We, we want our kids to be reconciled to their creator. That's the goal. That's always been the goal. The theme verse for the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 1.7, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The wise father in the Old Testament has his priorities straight. He understands that the fear of the Lord is actually the source of every other good thing he wants for his kid. He understands that if I can get my kid in right relationship with God, then everything else is going to flow out from that. Wisdom is going to flow out from that. Stability is going to flow out from that. Prosperity is going to flow out from that. It's all going to flow out from that. You, you get your child in right orbit around their creator, living at peace with their God and their world, and good things are going to happen. Now, the word fear strikes a lot of us as kind of, kind of like an Old Testament word. And so many in the modern-day evangelical church have tried to tone that down a bit. That's not helpful. It's also not accurate to say, well, that's an Old Testament word. It shows up a lot in the New Testament, too. Biblical scholar Douglas Stewart pushes back against that tendency, saying, the fear of the Lord is enjoined throughout Scripture, demanding that God's people stand always in awe of him, appreciate his supremacy and greatness, fear the consequences of disobeying his will, and not treat lightly any aspect of their covenant relationship with him, lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. Attempts on the part of some in modern times to define fearing the Lord as merely respecting him distort the biblical evidence. To fear the Lord means to stand always in awe of God. It means to understand God as the fundamental fact in the universe and to arrange your life around that. It is to respect his word. It is to understand that there will be consequences. Anytime you deviate from design, there will be consequences. Every single off-ramp from the, from the way that leads to life leads to worse outcomes. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, particularly for women and children. 
And so to fear the Lord means to, to believe that his ways are right and lead to life. It is to understand that every deviation from the plan is going to lead to harm. It is to understand that at the end of your journey, you will stand before God and give an account for your life. And it is to make decisions that accord with his defined reality. That is the fear of the Lord. And it is the main thing in both the Old and New Testaments. Here's what you need to understand. The gift of grace that we receive in the New Testament does not eradicate the fear of the Lord. On the contrary, it empowers us to live our lives in light of it. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Paul says that the grace we receive in the gospel is intended to help us grow up. It's to help us bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. That's what we should want for ourselves. And that is what we should want for our children. We should want our children to organize their lives around the fundamental fact of God. We should encourage our children to be reconciled to their creator through the person and work of Christ. We should encourage them to be transformed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by one degree of glory to the next. We should encourage them to bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Old Testament and new. That is our primary purpose as moms and dads. Let me just be real honest and real clear with you. The goal is not happiness and the goal is not Harvard. The goal is holiness in the fear of the Lord. Make that the object and aim of your ministry as a parent. All right, those are the do's. We want to do these things as a couple, as husbands and wives. We want to do these things in community, in the church, and we want to do these things unto the end of holiness in the fear of the Lord. Now, in the time we have left, let me give you a couple of don'ts. Because the Bible actually does contain positive and negative messaging. You know that. You know that even if you've read no further in the Bible than the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Some are framed positively. Some are framed negatively. So we've got honor your father and your mother. That's a positive. And then we've got you shall not commit adultery. That's a negative. There are do's and don'ts all over the Bible. They function like guide rails to move us towards the way that leads to life. So it is with parenting. In terms of the negatives or the don'ts, one of the most important of these has to do with discipline. The Bible tells us, do not withhold discipline from your child. Now, there are multiple versions of this scattered across the book of Proverbs. I'm thinking specifically here of Proverbs 23, 13 to 14, which says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, the word rod there makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Tremper Longman, again, is helpful here. He says, the sage is not talking about a rigorous beating, but rather something equivalent to a spanking. This may be surmised from the matter-of-fact statement, they will not die, as well as this book's general emphasis on moderation, kindness, and gentleness. So what we're talking about here is firm, loving discipline. That is the kind of discipline that we must not withhold from our children. And the Bible reminds us of this again and again and again for the simple reason that it understands that all of us will talk ourselves into discipline-less approaches to parenting for the simple reason that discipline is very hard. 
We may see the long-term benefits, but we feel the short-term costs. And that knocks a lot of us out of the game. There's an approach to parenting right now that is extremely popular uh, among young parents, uh, even young Christian parents. It's called gentle parenting. It emphasizes listening, processing, and validating the feelings that children have. Why are the old people laughing? <laughs> no, listen, there is some value to those things. But I just want to remind you as, as young parents that you must never be more committed to a parenting fad than you are to the authority and usefulness of God's word. And God's word says, do not withhold discipline from a child. Your children need to be taught about consequences because they will one day leave your lovely nest and enter a world with consequences where bad behaviors result in bad outcomes. And they need to be prepared for that by you. And your children need to learn about self-control. If you're child grows up feeling like they have the freedom to express all their big feelings whenever they have those big feelings, it's going to be very hard to hold down a job, and it's going to be very hard to hold down a relationship. Because I don't know if you know this, but most of the time, it's not a good idea to share your, back, your big feelings. I'm having some big feelings right now, that, that there's this little voice in, in my mind saying, do not share your big feelings. That voice is like a mixture of the Holy Spirit and my mom. <laughs> Do not share those feelings. Right? Like that's a useful voice that, that you, you want in your child's life. And, and you need to teach your child as well about limits. Because if you don't teach your child about limits then they're going to end up addicted, unemployed, or divorced, or in jail, or in hell. Because we live in a universe with lines and limits. And so if you love your kids, you're going to teach them about those things. good place to start with respect to limits would be the issue of technology. When I say good, I mean urgent and helpful. Because many of today's technologies have actually been designed specifically to attract and addict young people. Chris Anderson, former editor of Wired Magazine, said about today's tech that on the scale between candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack cocaine. This is beyond our ability to control. This is going straight to the pleasure centers of the developing brain. This is beyond our ability as parents to understand. He goes on to say that this has led him to establish some limits in his home with respect to children's access to technology. He goes on to talk about no phones until high school, no iPads, no social media until age 13, and no phones in the bedroom. This from a guy who writes professionally about the new and best tech on the market. Even the inventors of these technologies impose strict limits on their use within their home with their kids. Steve Jobs, for example, who invented the iPad, was once asked at a promo event, how his kids like the iPad. And he said, oh, they haven't used it. Adding, we limit how much technology our kids use at home. Brothers and sisters, if the inventors of these technologies place limits on their use in the home, then so must we. 
We need to impose screen discipline. If we don't do this, then as the Bible says, we might as well hate our kids because our gentle and permissive approach to parenting is doing them no long-term favors. If you love your kids, you will find the courage somewhere to impose some discipline on them. They won't thank you for it today. I share that as a personal testimony. They won't thank you for that today. But they will thank you for it later. It's a good thing about having a spread of parents is that I've got older kids now who are thanking me for the things they did not thank me for as young children. We've, we've all got to be mature enough and patient enough to accept that deal. Don't withhold discipline from your kids. And then lastly, don't make an idol of your kids. Parenting is important. We've spent the last two weeks talking about it because it is important. But it cannot be the core of your identity. What's an, what's an idol? Remember, an idol is often a good thing that you treat like a God thing. An idol is simply about having a disordered universe, right? So if you use the analogy of, you know, your own personal universe, your, you know, what should be at the center? Well, the biggest thing. Okay, if God is at the center of your personal universe, and then you organize everything out from there, like the sun, the biggest thing's got to go in the middle. If you organize your universe properly, then everything in its place, usually you get good outcomes. But bad things happen when you put smaller things in the biggest spot. Right? Like imagine what would happen to our universe if you took the sun and you took Neptune and you switched their positions. That's a like civilization ending. That's a life that's an extinction level event for the entire solar system. It's a bad thing. Biggest things in the middle. An idol is when you treat a good thing like a god thing. Now it's good to prioritize being a parent. It should be important to you. But it should not be the biggest thing. It should not be everything to you. And it is everything to a surprising number of parents. Now, not surprisingly, this is more of a risk for moms than it is for dads. And that doesn't mean dads are less inclined to idolatry. Uh, When you ask a man what is the most important thing in his life, a shocking number of men say their work. But when you ask a woman what is the most important thing in her life, a shocking number of women say they're, they're parenting, they're kids. A 2023 Pew Research study found that while the vast majority of mothers and fathers say being a parent is the most or one of the most important aspects of who they are as a person, a larger share of moms, 35%, than dads, 24%, said that it is the most important aspect. Okay, to state the obvious, parenting should not be the most important aspect of who you are as a person. You were created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1.27. Therefore, who you are before God is the most important aspect of your identity. And who you are with respect to your spouse should be the second most important aspect of your identity. And then who you are as a parent should never be higher than number three. How do you know if you have an idolatry problem if you're a parent? Well, here, here are a couple of tests. If you can't say no to your child, even when you know you should, then your child has become an idol in your life. If you can't recover from a parenting disappointment, if you can't have joy in the Lord while you are feeling sorrow as a parent or as a person who wants to be a parent, then parenting has become an idol in your life. 
your number three has become your number one. Your child or the child you want to have has become the fundamental fact in your universe. That's idolatry. Here's another test. If you can't leave your child behind in order to invest time and energy in your marriage, then your child has become an idol. I will tell you, it it, it shocks me today how many young parents I encounter, both inside and outside the church, who have like a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a three-year-old and a one-year-old and who have never left their children behind to go on a date night or to go for a weekend away. That is not healthy. And what is the problem? Like you say, well, why don't you leave your kids with grandma and go away for the, well, can I just tell you something? Grandma knows more about kids than you do. (laughs) You need to leave those kids with at camp grandma and you need to see see you later cry your eyes out I don't give it give it give a darn because we are going out right now for mom and dad time that is so important sociologists have found that regular date nights are one of the strongest predictors of marital of marital happiness so get out of the house leave your kids behind Go on a date. It's good for your marriage. It's good for your kids. Listen, the best gift you can give your child is to raise them in a properly ordered universe. They need to see you loving God, loving each other, and leading them in that order. That's how you train up a child in the way that they should go It doesn't guarantee outcomes, but it does position your child for faith and blessing. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Oh, our Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, thankful for your grace, thankful that you do more in our lives than our circumstances would predict. And yet, Lord, to your redeemed people, You reveal the cheat code for human life. You tell us how we should live, how we should organize our priorities to maximize the blessings and opportunities we can give to our children. So we're thankful for both of those things. Lord, we're thankful for for grace and we're thankful for wisdom. And I pray that as families and as, as a church, we would make good use of both. And we give you thanks for both. In Jesus' name, amen.